Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Justice Stout and Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheartsorg you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last four years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like the sounds of that, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. We'd like to thank Joel and Candace Lynn for their generous donation in sponsoring this episode. Yeah, Joel actually contacted me particularly asking if we would do an episode on arts and the doctrine of the incarnation. And this is our take on that. Michael, why do we have to fight so hard for the arts in the evangelical church today? It is strange, especially considering the prominent place of the arts in the historic church and the Bible. But something does seem to be holding us back. And there's an odd correlation between a church's perspective on the arts and that same church's perspective on the physical, material world. Well, today we're going to talk about it. This is Art and Evangelical Gnosticism. All right, so I think for this one, we're using words like Gnosticism (laughs) and Platonism. Yeah. We need some definitions. All right. So let's begin by uh, talking a little bit little bit about what Gnosticism and Platonism actually are. It's pronounced Gnosticism. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's okay. I think that I'm going to define Gnosticism as a species of Platonism. So Platonism is sort of like the father category and Gnosticism is the child category. And uh, Platonism focuses on a particular idea of the philosopher Plato and his theory of ideas or forms, which contrast these abstract entities or universals with their objects or particulars in the material world. So it's sort of like he made made a, a division between the ideas, the abstract world, and the material world, and not just a distinction, but like a pretty hard division. And in fact, in Platonism, uh, this basically creates a dismissal or disparagement of the material world in the elevation of abstracts or ideas. Now, uh, Gnosticism as a species of that, again, focusing on this idea of the division between the spiritual and the physical, and an elevation of the spiritual and a total dismissal of the physical or the material. That being Platonism? That's Platonism. Gnosticism kind of ties into that. It's a species of Platonism, which emphasizes knowledge of the ideals or ideas of God as the exclusive key to salvation. So you could have different forms of Platonism, like, for example, maybe just spirituality uh, would be a form of Platonism where it's uh, the spiritual realm and not so much necessarily knowledge. Like, for example, would Buddhism be a form of 
Platonism? Yeah, Does that Buddhism even make could. Sense? And even like the, the Christian sect of pietism is sometimes mm-hmm. criticized as being, you know, so heavenly minded that it's no earthly good. You gotcha. know, that, that's something people talk about. But Gnosticism is a particular brand that really mm-hmm. focuses on the knowledge aspect. Like even Gnosis is is from the the uh, Greek. Greek. Yeah. yeah, so it has to do with knowledge, yeah. like what you know being the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, about how you're, so it's 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 really mental and intellectual led. Um, what leads your perspective? What leads your worldview? Your life? Your your all the things that you do follows from what you think about things. And uh, in Gnosticism, the abstract or ideal ideas concerning God are given such primacy as to almost become an exclusive primacy. Gotcha. Is it a little bit of an irony that Plato is like just stuff and it sounds like Plato? Dude. Yeah. I think we got him good on that one. Yeah, we sure did. He doesn't even know. <laughs> uh, so there are some red flags that modern evangelicalism has a problem in this area. Yeah, um, I completely agree. So, and and actually what's been really strange is that when we first began this project... I don't know, 15 years ago or Going whatever. On. Yeah. Yeah. So for a long, 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 yeah. long time, I've been talking about this aspect or this, this issue of like the arts are really, really important. And when I first started talking about it, I maybe it was my naivete or whatever, my youth, my immaturity. I didn't really think that what I was addressing was a terribly controversial thing. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I was experiencing all this resistance and pushback from evangelical Christians. And I was like, what in the what? Why? And it what? doesn't make sense. It's yeah. like, hey, I think that we should start investing in the arts again, like the church used to. Like that, I don't know. Like, I agree. That yeah. doesn't sound crazy. No, it doesn't. Uh, or like, I think that we should start supporting Christian musicians. But, and artists. But as you develop a... Um, a reasoning behind that of like, well, why should I? Especially like if you're soliciting donations or just kind of build a construct of this is this is valuable and deserving of attention and resources. Uh, you hit a brick wall, or yeah, we totally. have certainly hit a brick wall, and maybe some of that is that we're maybe we're joiks. Yeah, but uh, I don't think so. No. I think we've always been really respectful, and um, well, we've tried to be, and we've been like we've always been respectful and orthodox, certainly, uh, and. But we've still hit a brick wall, and and that's very strange. It has been really strange. And it wasn't until recently, which, again, probably just signals my uh, slow learning ship. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it hasn't been until recently that I realized some of the complex of problems that I was actually coming up against. So, like, before we get into all the details of it, maybe I'm cutting you off. I don't no. mean to cut you off, but, like... Before we start fleshing out the main ideas, in order to to really let our listeners in on like like convince me that this is you know an, an actual, actual issue. issue. What are the red flags? Like, how do you know? Like, these are big words. How like what's actually you know? Is there something practically wrong? Right. So, in terms of Platonism, I read an article recently, and I actually quoted from it recently in a seminary paper, and you found it. I think independently yeah, um, yeah, and read the same article and, and were also impressed with it and just how strange it was. On, it, was. it was on first things. So, yeah. you know, they're pretty, they're pretty widely yeah, read. Um, but it was, uh, it was written by a woman who taught, who teaches still. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. great books, I think, at George Fox University. I don't know if that was the course, but it is George Fox. And she was saying that to her great surprise, many of her students did not believe in the bodily resurrection. In fact, she she uh, took the survey over the course of time, meaning she would ask stu- she had asked students this question years ago, and had kind of a casual survey going of how you know the percentage of her class that that thought um, will will you have a body in heaven? I think was basically the mm-hmm. question, and you know even I believe she said even fifteen years ago, it was mostly. Uh, there, there was a majority of people who did think that you would have a body in heaven. But it was probably more, I understand that that is a doctrine that I need to agree with. Whereas now, the practical aspects of that dismissal mm-hmm. within the ev- evangelical church has actually produced, finally, the product of that practical emphasis in a doctrinal stance that is totally in opposition to historic Christianity. Right, and because she said what in, in her recent surveys, she would ask her students the same thing, and it was only a very small... Yeah, it was like 9 out of number. 10 or something ridiculous. What, what yes, was it? I think, well, I don't remember exactly, but I think the, the percentage was about, uh, yeah, yeah, I think 10 or 12% of students typically thought that there would be a bodily resurrection or yeah. a physical presence in Which heaven. Which means 90% of her students... Yeah, did not believe in the bodily resurrection, which Paul says specifically, if there isn't a resurrection of Christ, then there isn't a resurrection for us, and we are, of all people, most to be pitied. If we don't have a physical if resurrection. If we don't have a physical... So you're thinking, what, like, this seems like a fairly central doctrine of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that. I think one of the reasons why this um, dismissal of the bodily resurrection has occurred is because of this rejection of the material, which has huge numbers of Mm -hmm. other effects. Mm -hmm. And one of them is in the rationalism and intellectualism that's also sort of pervasive within the uh, reform, and that is really the Gnosticism. That's where you go from Platonism to Gnosticism. Is where the, intellectual, the intellectualism. intellectualism. Where it's almost as, as if people would say that what you believe is more central to your faith than who you believe in. And that's actually the other big red flag for me. Like, that's actually what I started sniffing out earlier than any of these other things, really, was I started to put my finger on this idea, even 10 years ago, of it's not my theology that saves me. And that was a big revelation for me because for most of my life, it certainly felt that way. I don't know if I would have said it that way, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, what is it? How will I know? How do I know that I'm, <laughs> if you will, right with the Lord? And, uh, it always seemed to be this pursuit of correctness in my thinking thinking, and my full understanding, like my apologetic or my worldview. Like that is how I know that I am all right because or, – or, or how do I even draw closer to God? What are the means by which I draw closer to him? I read my Bible and I further hone my intellectual understanding. I expand my systematic theology and I tweak – my my theology and my thinking and my intellect and I spend and I spend hours and hours and hours 
learning about this in Christian college and then more hours discussing it outside of class. Yeah. And it's, it's, you see it in the emphasis on uh, confessions and on worldview training and on apologetics, mm-hmm. where it's almost as if, if I could just convince an unbeliever to believe the right things, to think even to the, think right, the things, right things, that is salvation. That would be salvation for them. Yeah. And yeah. so there's this also, along with that, a rejection of the material aspects of righteousness, like doing good works. Yes. And that's the weird correlation because you have, in my experience, and I think we just quickly touched on this before in a previous episode, but in my experience, the most intellectual congregations that I've been in or even seen, you know, the most heady congregations or even pastors were the ones that seemed to have the most difficulty actually investing in works of righteousness. Mm-hmm. Like these congregations Mercy are, the, ministry. are the ones that don't have yeah. very good partners or even in-house mercy ministries and um, or even people who found that to be a high personal priority. Right. And, and it totally flies in the face of the scriptural testimony of the importance of these things. Well, what is good and true religion? Pure and undefiled Pure religion and undefiled. In, this in is the side of our visiting Lord. Visiting the orphans and the widows and being unstained by the world. Right. And uh, I think in some sense, I probably, well, I definitely grew up thinking to myself, what is pure and undefiled religion, it's reading your Bible every day. And maintaining the the unstained doctrines mm-hmm. that have been delivered to us. And, now, and that sanctification is essentially a purging of incorrect thinking. Right. Now, again, so that no one takes us totally wrong here. Before, I don't, before people <laughs> log off at this point. <laughs> right. We're not saying that doctrine isn't important, that these ideas aren't important. We're merely saying that an, an exclusive emphasis on the verbal testimony of the church based on a platonic Gnosticism has actually produced an imbalance in the church that is actually undermining to the verbal witness of the church. Right. Um, that it is with the embodied witness of the church supporting the content of our verbal witness that people actually uh, see the full testimony of the word of God. Now... Yeah. Because the word of God is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it and you say, okay, well, let's, let's start where the Bible starts. Let's consider what the Bible thinks is actually, or what the authors of the Bible think is actually important here. You realize that the incarnation is not a tertiary or irrelevant doctrine, but that with, uh, like the Apostle John, it's the very beginning of his gospel mm-hmm. where he talks about in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This idea of the word becoming flesh, of incarnating is a central building block, a foundational principle of his doctrine, actually. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that when you look at First John, same author, and you consider, okay, tell us, John, what is the central doctrine? in your mind, that distinguishes a spirit from the world from a spirit from God? Mm-hmm. How do we determine? Mm-hmm. What's the, what is the spirit of God saying? Tell and, me. And he says in 1 John 1, uh, 2 through 3, uh, or maybe it's 1 John 2, 2 through 3, actually. Anyway, but uh, by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, 
of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So it's obviously... A central doctrine. Absolutely central. Like in some ways primary. Certainly to John, it's like, well, if I had to boil it down to one thing. That's it. It's that that Jesus Jesus is God in the flesh. In the flesh. And what is... So so if it's true... Well, I guess... So this flies in the face of Gnosticism. Because the, the flesh and the physical realm and the material realm is necessarily associated exclusively with sin and with... Um, in the Gnostic conception. Yeah. And the Platonic it, conception. Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. And, and uh, how can that necessarily be the case if God was made man and that this God who was made man made flesh also resurrected into a body again? Right. Yeah. And actually, I think that's what the, uh, the author of that First Things article said. She said that the the reason why a lot of her students did not believe in the bodily resurrection is that they believed that the body was the source and seat of sin. Right. And they're thinking, how in the world could your body be resurrected if your body is the whole reason for the sin problem in the first place? Mm-hmm. And that's just not a biblical or even historically Christian perspective on the body. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very vital doctrine. Um, and it's something that has been lost, I think, to a large extent within the evangelical community. Mm-hmm. I read an extremely well-respected author and theologian who said that he did not believe that the idea that Jesus was the Word of God in flesh was even an important or central doctrine to be defended, but rather it was a limiting concept to protect us from heresy, and that was all. Hmm. And I'm sitting here looking at that, and I'm like, man, I don't, I don't think you actually understand how much of an impact the incarnation actually has on the practice of Christianity on a daily basis. So let's talk about that. So, right. so now we've gone over the idea of what Platonism is, what Gnosticism is, some signs that Gnosticism is in the church. What does this have to do with the arts? Well, I have thought of the arts for a long time as sort of the canary in the mine shaft mm-hmm. uh, for a church's perspective on the incarnation. It is generally the case that a church that has an anemic uh, perspective on the arts has a whole host of other perspectives concerning the material world that uh, are indicative of Gnosticism. They're going to diminish the diaconal ministries as important. They're going to diminish the sacraments as as important. Mm-hmm. They're going to diminish um, emotions and uh, mater- the material world, generally speaking, as being important. Mm-hmm. They're going. It's just like you go down the line. It's like is is the so is social justice important? I can almost tell you without any uh, inquiry that if a church has an anemic perspective on the arts, does not have healthy arts community, that their perspective on social justice, racial reconciliation, uh, gender issues, power differentials, uh, material world, uh, sacraments, um, you know, all these things, like this whole host of things that have to do with the way that the truth works its way, works itself mm-hmm. into time and space, that they're just going to have the same perspective on all those things. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, the arts can be a workshop for the incarnation. And the, the reasoning I have on this is that the arts as a sign, as a material sign 
that points to a spiritual truth are able to teach people how the earth and the stuff that God made is related to his eternal and absolute and perfect existence. Mm-hmm. And it really is in that moment, that, 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 that almost microscopic meeting point of the incarnation, where there was, a, there was a single point in time when a cell, a zygote, a single cell in Mary was the God-man. Mm-hmm. And at that very moment of conception, God had entered into time and space in a most literal sense. Mm-hmm. If God didn't think that was important, why would he do it? And when you look at this idea of the doctrine of the word as being this unification of the word and flesh, this unification of the idea, the eternal idea, and the temporal stuff, then you realize that in Christ, all things are being reconciled to God, all things, both in heaven and on earth, Mm -hmm. that both time and space and stuff and matter and flesh and all of the activities of human beings are being subsumed into the eternal reality of God in the incarnation so that everything is made important there. When you look at Ecclesiastes, you see vanity of vanities, everything is vanity and all is striving after the wind. You think, what will make that not the case anymore? And you say, the incarnation, the incarnation, that's what makes it not the case anymore. When Jesus comes into time and space, he carries along with him a host of captives, right? He carries along with him a host of realities. I have made your flesh meaningful. I have made your existence in time and space meaningful by my presence here Mm -hmm. in it, in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't stop when Jesus returns to his Father in heaven because he sends his Spirit to us Mm -hmm. so that through the power of his Spirit, all of the material aspects of our existence can be made meaningful in service to God and in service to his body on earth. Even the fact that Christ's church is called the body of Christ Mm -hmm. should indicate to us the vast and central importance of the manifest and embodied witness of the church to the world of God. All right, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just drinking out of a fire hose over here. (laughs) But I think that the arts are central to that, or at least not necessarily central. It's more that they are such an important tool that God himself recognized as important from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. Yeah, it's self-evident. There's right. so much art throughout all Narrative of scripture. Narrative and poetry. If God was a Gnostic himself, he would have uh, treated the conveyance of truth in very different terms. In totally different terms. And uh, and just personally speaking, th- this is the, the difference between a Gnostic approach and one that is hopefully biblical is the idea that my Christianity is not merely an intellectual exercise and that the, um, that my actual body takes place or takes part in my, uh, salvation experience and sanctification and glorification as much as my mind or my spirit. Right. And that this actual, these, this flesh and bones, these are going to be redeemed and resurrected as, as the earth itself the dirt will be redeemed right. and made new and 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 that and 
taking God's work and not boxing it into a merely intellectual or um, heady pursuit, but to, to make it a pursuit of every facet of our being, which includes spirit or soul, but also our bodies and what our bodies can do. Mm-hmm. So what can our bodies do in our sanctification? And this is where you have the huge um, – the way that James breaks onto the scene in his epistle and talks about uh, or even clarifies the idea of faith. And the Reformed community and evangelicalism is is very uh, – you know, takes a strong stand on faith. Faith alone, sole fide, right. and and says it's not by works that you're saved, uh, but obviously James in the book of James says, well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without, without your works, works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Right. So that there is, you know, faith is actually a very physical thing. Even whenever you look at the uh, patrons of, of faith, uh, you, you look at Abraham, mm-hmm. you know, Which how, James how, himself do you, brings up. how do you even look to Abraham without looking at his physical obedience of uh, the willingness, not, o- not only the willingness, but the actual attempt to sacrifice his own son. Mm. And um, in the hall of faith in Hebrews, you have all these examples of people who are known for their faith. And of course, they're known for their faith because of their actions, because of the actual things that they did with their bodies. Right. And so there's this value that we actually have now, which isn't just, I'm going to figure out the right theology and the right thinking and, and I'll go to heaven. My spirit will go to heaven one day where I will exist intellectually or theoretically with God. In some amorphous mess. In an, afor- in a, in an amorphous mess. And I actually remember, I've, I remember when my brother Micah died, and we've talked about him on this podcast because he was so central in the creation of this organization. But when Micah died, there were conversations that I was having with people of when I get to heaven, will Micah's, will I recognize Micah? Mm-hmm. Like, will he actually be in a body and in a body that I recognize? Or will I just be with God, the collection of all souls? Yeah. Kind of, you know what I mean? Which oddly is sort of the Buddhist concept of the collective oversoul or whatever. Right. And uh, and I had lots of conversations and didn't really, you know, at the time, it didn't seem that far from the truth to, to think, well, you know, that sounds about right too. Mm-hmm. But absolutely not. No, it's not. Right. And it's not biblical to think that way. I mean, even it's it's insane, actually, to think in those terms. Paul says it again, over and over again. He talks about how we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ mm-hmm. and we will be judged for the deeds that we have done in the body, whether good or evil. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. the whole judgment is based. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what's that Keith Green song? The Keith Green song where it yeah. says, you know, you separate the sheep and the goats by what they did and did, did not, not do. do. That's right. And that's and that's what the separation line certainly in Revelation is. Now, let's go back, though. Okay. Let's talk about a little bit about the James and the Abraham story, because the reason why James even brings Abraham into the picture is because Abraham is, and oddly, Paul also brings Abraham into the picture as a person who believed and whose faith, that his belief itself was credited to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. It, what's odd is that James and Paul are not talking about the same exact instance. That when, when Abraham sacrificed his son, went to Mount Moriah mm-hmm. uh, and, and, was, and, and was ready, like had, had the knife raised and was doing it, um, that was, I think, about 15 years after God had promised him that he would have a son. Now, 
when he believes and it's credited to him as righteousness, that's 15 years before. Mm. And Paul's pointing out to this, like, like, you know, there's nothing that's been done here. He hasn't done anything at this point except for just trusted that God was was right. Gotcha. And, and really at that point, there's nothing to do except for to say, I believe you, God. Mm. And so there is this sense in which, okay, faith has this aspect of an intellectual assent. I assent to what you're saying as being the truth. Mm-hmm. But when God came to him 15 years later and says, all right, Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to go to the mountain that I specify and I want you to give him up as a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering, which means that Abraham would have had to skin him burn his body entirely in fire and wear that skin. That, that's, that's what that means. And I just want, I mean, just when you think about that, does that not just war against every affection of a father's heart for his son and every promise that God had made concerning mm-hmm. Isaac and every intellectual idea that he possibly could have had? God is contradicting himself uh, here. Yeah, it I seems cannot, insane. Yeah, I, yeah. But w- at that point, what James says is that his faith has been perfected because he did what God asked him to do on the basis of his trust. Mm-hmm. And so right there, you know, I've sort of brought him in without really explicitly mentioning them. But you have this idea, again, of the three faculties of the spirit, of the intellect and the affections and the will. And Abraham's affections and Abraham's intellect would have warred against taking his son to Mount Moriah. Mm -hmm. But his will was subsumed. His will was submitted to God. And it's in the submission of his will, which can only actually be exercised in physical bodily action. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the point. It's like, if you have a trust fall and I'm saying, all right, do you trust me? And you say, yes. Okay. Intellectual assent. But do you trust me? Fall back. Fall into my arms. Mm-hmm. Fall back. Oh no! I already told you. I already told you. Well, I already told you. Well, I trust you. See, you. I have an assured. Yeah, I have. The... I have a full and sure a certainty <laughs> of, of the truth. Well, it's like no, I know, but I'm telling you, if you really trust me, fall into my arms. Exactly. Now you can't actually exercise faith in that moment without action. Yeah. And that's what James is talking about: is that there is a faith that is an assent, and that mm-hmm. must be there. You must say, "I believe you, God." Yeah. But also that faith will work itself out in a trust, which which will affect your will. I will mm-hmm. do something different because I truly do believe you. And that's always what you see throughout the scriptures in any of the arguments that God has through his prophets to the church. He's always saying, you say that you believe me. Now show me. Now show me mm-hmm. that you believe me. You've turned your, your face toward me, but your hearts are turned away from me. You are not actually turning toward me in affection and will. You've merely uh, agreed right? With mm-hmm. this intellectual idea, this creed, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's not enough. Yeah, That's not enough. And so really John, I think, in his epistle and in his gospel and in Revelation really brings this home mm-hmm. where he says, you know what it takes is this true, full expression of the enfleshment of God in Jesus. Right. That when you become the body of Christ, when your body is actually fully exercising this thing you say you believe, then you will truly witness Jesus to the world. Mm-hmm. And that comes in love, and it comes in deeds of service, and it comes in hospitality, and generosity, and in leadership. And in creativity. And in creativity. And, and, and what's crazy is that the leadership of the arts, when you look at the prophets, and when you look at the um, just 
the songwriters and the temple musicians and artisans who worked, uh, you know, throughout the, the church history in the development of this worshipful attitude, it's sort of like God saying, hey, the arts are a great little workshop where you guys can tune your hearts and tune your wills to actually express in your bodies the things you say you believe in your mind. Right. That this is something that you can taste and touch and handle and smell and and so and see. Mm-hmm. And and so when we have the sacrament, right? This sacrament, which is really the the central idea of the incarnation in the church. We have a sermon which talks about the proclamation of the word. And then we have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is actually the the tangible presence of Jesus with us. Right? You have which those is signified two- in us actually physically eating taking it. food right. and wine or juice and eating it and drinking it and actually that being becoming a part of our body. Right. And that's a really important thing. Like you could say, well, what about if it's just spiritually present? Isn't that good enough? And that's sort of the attitude towards the arts. Mm-hmm. Is that if we just have the idea of it, why do we have to show or embody this reality? And that's why it is so detrimental to the arts because it's like everything that the arts can do a sermon can do better. Right. A An intellectual ascent could do better. And that's just not the case because sometimes we need to approach truth in more ways than just our intellect. Right. In more ways than just a lecture. Taste and see that, that the, the Lord, Lord is good. good. I will sing a new song and men, many will see and fear and put, and their, put trust their trust in God. God. Right. So, the, so it's, a, it's a vital aspect. Now, again, don't get us wrong. I'm not saying that the sermons should just be thrown out the window because the verbal and embodied witness are both parts of this word made flesh. They, 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 they are fulfilling the dual aspect of the incarnation. But it's not until we are able to recognize this issue that I think is pretty self-evident of uh, kind of a neo-Gnosticism and Platonism, and we start learning to value again the tangible elements of our Christian faith, which include the sacrament and which include, well, a lot of things, deeds of service and works of physical works of righteousness, but also in the for the sake of the podcast and, and because of our mission, uh, we're particularly tuned in to the necessity of um, that physical investment in the arts and how that is essential for the church to be healthy. Yeah. Because it's our a worship training ground. is not just intellectual. Mm-hmm. All our worship involves our, our singing, you know, our mouths and, and our vocal cords and our diaphragm. And our worship includes our eyes being able to make things that we look on and remember God and our... Our bodies Everything. and dance and our hands and clapping. Everything. And All the senses. our postures that we take. And we actually won't be able to rally support and a biblical understanding and investment in the arts until uh, we kind of start to recognize this. And I think it's interesting that we've come to recognize what I think is a big issue or central issue for the church in a roundabout way through the arts. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's good is that I think the arts will also, even though we need to address that and that will bear support for the art, uh, for the arts, I think that it also can be, there can be a tact or excuse me, attack approach of the arts tacking into the wind and and kind of approaching that central issue uh, by, I guess, people who are already there being willing to invest in it and, totally. and, and support artists and being able to minister to these uh, 
minister in this physical way to these to these needs that the church currently has. And I think that it'll be self-evident that, ah, that is good. That is important. Why does that seem like that's not... Why, why did I think that was not important for so long? Right. And the arts really are, will be and can be an engine of that development. Yeah. When we invest in those things, we will be trained in our senses in how to discern with our taste the difference between good and evil, the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, because that's not just an idea. That is something that has to be applied in, in a material sense. And I think that artists have been in the history of the church, actually relied upon for the insight that they have into these things and their ability to apply these things in sensory aspects mm -hmm. to the church so as to show what the church already knew through telling. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think it's a vital aspect in combating this Gnosticism, which is actually eating away at the witness of the church and undermining our, our, our verbal witness. You preach a sermon, but people say, yeah, okay, yeah. This is the truth you say, but I'm looking at you guys and I'm seeing ugliness. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because that was one of the central messages of the Jesus movement, mm. uh, which was a really vibrant, creative revival that happened, you know, like 40 years ago, where uh, all of a sudden, all these musicians on fire for the Lord these were some of the things they were pointing out. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you call yourself Christians, just listen to Keith Green's mm -hmm. album, Uncompromised. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's No Compromise. I think it's No Compromise, sorry. But uh, yeah, listen to that. That's his whole shtick mm -hmm. is that I hear a lot of belief and I hear a lot of confessions and I hear a lot of words. But Verbal assent. Yeah, exactly. But I don't see, I don't see the evidence. Mm -hmm. I don't see the evidence. And it is by their fruits. That it is by the them. fruits that we know and he even says, you know, that that not just those within you, not even just those within the church, but even outside the church. Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, the, the, the people outside the church, when they see the evidence of God's miraculous work in our lives, they will at least have no excuse. Mm -hmm. But many of them will be drawn in and say, hey, man, how, 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 how do you, how is this community able to preserve so much beauty? when the beauty of things, the purity and the loveliness of things is so degraded outside of your community? Mm -hmm. How are you guys able to do this? Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, that, that's why we exist. Like a lot of people will say the arts are a tertiary issue and I, and, and I get why they say that. But I think once you realize just sort of the central place the arts have in this issue of the incarnation and the central place the incarnation has in the whole doctrine of the scriptures and the whole doctrines of Christianity and the whole practice of Christianity historically and biblically, mm -hmm. then you start to say, wow, we, we've sort of, we're, we're making, we're, we're, we're not doing what we need to be doing concerning this area. Right. So the song we're going to feature today is a song that I actually wrote called Utah. Uh, I wrote it with a very good friend of mine, Trevor Hot, who wrote the, the guitar part, the music for it. Um, but this song is like, at this point, close to about eight years old. And it is the first touches of mine on this issue where I started, it was really through this song, interestingly enough, through writing the song and grappling with the issues in the song, 
where um, I st- there's a line that in in the song that says, "Is it your mind that saves your soul?" And this is in the context of some me trying to relate to someone that's having a mental episode. And in that context, it's actually hard. Like I, I'm very close to this person, and they're having mental issues. And uh, how can I have a trust that this person is going to be saved if he, if during his episodes in particular, he's saying things that aren't aligning with scripture. And his mind seems to be broken. And his mind seems to be broken. How he, I know him to be a child of God. A child of God for his whole life. But these episodes, certainly within these episodes, it's like his brain isn't functioning correctly and he's not speaking truth and not confessing truth. And I came to the reali- realization that it's not his ability to articulate truth or theology that's going to save him. It's literally Jesus who is going to save him. It's not his mind that saves his soul. And then I realized it's not my mind that saves my soul. It's not my theology that saves my soul. It's Jesus and his work, his completely independent, almost snatching of my soul. And then the faith that results from that and the works that result from that are all good and proper and necessary. But Jesus saves me, not my theology. And to be able to rest in that for someone that's dealing with, say, uh, multiple personality disorders or schizophrenia or any of these. Down syndrome, autism, senility. What about autism? Where do they stand with God? Can God save someone who can't articulate the correct, all the correct theologies? I certainly hope so. And I absolutely believe so. Mm -hmm. Because God can save whomever he wants. And, uh, and that it's not your brain's capacity and your brain's functionality that is going to determine whether or not you're savable. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. Here's that song.
saves your soul If that were right I know where we'd all go Is it your mind that saves your soul If that were right I know where we'd all With someone who's crazy And how do you love him When his head's not right oh, I guess that's what That's what's so crazy He stole our hearts And healed our minds our hearts and heals our minds. <laughs> 